text for the sermon this morning comes from Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 16. Philippians 3, verses 12 through 16. This is the word of our living God. Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind, and if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us be of the same mind. John G. Payton was a Reformed Presbyterian minister who was sent out in 1858 to be a missionary on the Pacific Islands of the New Hebrides. Back in the 1800s, these islands were filled with cannibals, but Peyton had an earnest zeal to preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he preached the crucified and risen Christ to them through many trials and hardships. After four decades of ministering to these people, two dozen missionaries had joined him, and thousands had been converted to Christ. Peyton was used mightily by God to advance his kingdom on these once barbaric islands. Yet at the end of Peyton's autobiography, he would say these striking words. Oh, that I had my life to begin again. I would consecrate it anew to Jesus and seek in the conversion of the remaining cannibals of the New Hebrides. But since that may not be, may help me to use every moment and every power still left to carry forward to the uttermost that beloved work. Doubtless, these poor, degraded savages are a part of the Redeemer's inheritance, given, given to him in the Father's eternal covenant. And thousands of them are destined through us to sing his praise in the glory and joy of the heavenly world. Even in the final years in Peyton's life, after decades of faithful service to God and hardships we could hardly even imagine, Peyton was still earnest to do the work of the Lord. He was not content to sit back and and say that he had arrived at some, some degree of Christian labor, but he pressed on. He continued to press towards the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And this should be an encouragement to us to keep on persevering in our service of Christ. We, like Peyton, like the Apostle Paul, ought to press on. Now is not the time for us to sit back, but now is the time to set the work God has called us to. Now is the time to grow in holiness and conformity to the image of Christ. So this morning, I want you to consider 
our text from Philippians 3, verse 12 through 16, hearing that call to run the race of faith, knowing that you have not yet arrived at perfection and knowing the prize that awaits you. Now, to understand why you must press on, you must know that you have not arrived at perfection yet. You must know that you haven't arrived at perfection yet. This likely seems like an obvious point. I don't think any of us would say that we are perfect. None of us would say that we have arrived. Yet at times we can act like this is the case. We can fall into slumps and be content with where we are currently in our spiritual walk. And Paul warns us against such an attitude. Paul, the apostle of Jesus Christ, a man who wrote the vast majority of the New Testament, a man who planted many churches in Europe and Asia, a man who scholars and Christians alike study and look up to to this day, a man you might think would comfortably sit back, even as he's sitting in a prison in Rome and say that he has done enough. No, the Apostle Paul says in our text, not that I have already attained or am already perfected, for all Paul has done in the service of the Lord Jesus, he still noted aspects of his life that needed to be brought into greater conformity to the image of Christ. Paul knew he had not arrived, that he had not yet completed the race, that he had not yet received that laurel crown. And specifically, Paul notes that he had not yet attained the resurrection of the dead. And this is striking because Paul isn't saying, as, as some would today, that you can arrive at perfection. You can do some, you can arrive at some sort of perfection in this life. No, when Paul says he's not yet attained the resurrection of the dead, he's saying, I've not yet attained eternal life. And so there's still this need to press on. We know that there's a clear connection between Philippians 3, verses 10 through 11, and Philippians 3.12, Paul says in, in verses 10 and 11 that he longs to gain Christ that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Then in, in verse 12 of our text, we see that Paul says, not that I have already attained. He has not attained these things yet. So he continues pressing on. He says he will not be content until he has received such, until he knows what it is to dwell in perfection with God. Do you consider that you have not yet attained the resurrection from the dead? Do you Regularly consider that you are not perfect. As we already noted, most people are, are willing and ready to admit that, no, I am not perfect. I have many flaws. But at the same time, they are content to stay where they are. They recognize that their personal devotions are not what they should be. But... They are comfortable enough with their devotional life so they won't set down to do any real work to change. 
Others may realize that they struggle with various besetting sins, but are content with those sins. They don't want to do necessarily the hard work of putting off and putting on. And so, there are many men today who would spend more time getting the perfect score on a video game than working on their own holiness. And there are many women who would spend more time working on their makeup than striving for holiness. We are too content with our sinfulness. We know that we have not yet arrived, but we do not take that knowledge into action. Let us not be like those who have run a marathon and come within 10 feet of the finish line and start getting all happy and rejoicing. They stop running even, thinking that, yes, they've won the race. But then someone runs right past them and crosses the finish line. And they're the ones that get first place. The person who is standing right before the finish line is is rejoicing and all happy, but he didn't win because he rejoiced too soon. He got content too soon. Let us not be true of your walk with God. Do not sit back until you know eternal life. Do not be content with where you are. Let Philippians 3 ring in your ears. Know that you have not arrived yet. Let that be the impetus for you pursuing holiness with a greater zeal. Know that there is much yet to accomplish for the sake of Christ. Do not just callously acknowledge your lukewarmness in the faith, but let that be the cattle prod that urges you on. So you must know that you have not yet arrived. But you must also know the glories that await you as a believer in heaven. These glories are what drove Paul in Philippians 1 to say that for him death would be gain. Because he would gain more of Christ. Death would grant Paul more of Christ. Now we can't comprehend the torments of hell. No, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, men cast out into utter darkness, being consumed by the holy wrath of God, utterly forsaken by God, knowing only the condemnation of God, knowing only his wrath and anger. We can't fully comprehend what that would be like. What we can know would be horrifying. Horrors of hell are utterly terrifying. And since they are utterly terrifying, in contrast, the glories of heaven are utterly amazing. Christ has not purchased a small inheritance for his bride. Christ has won a wondrous heaven for his church. His precious jewel will be sat in an infinitely glorious crown. And the climax of the glory of heaven will be Christ himself. A bride on her wedding day. A 
is solely focused on her soon-to-be husband. She's solely focused on her bridegroom. And so the church will be solely focused on her loving bridegroom. It'll be focused on the Lamb of God who has taken away her sins, who has made her pure and undefiled. And Paul was able to press on with zeal because he knew this. He knew that Christ had laid hold of him. He knew the love that Christ had for him. And this knowledge was was a profound encouragement for Paul. He was able to endure all things because he knew what awaited him. And you too, you have the first fruits of this eternal life. Christ has laid hold of you. Christ has worked in you a living and a vibrant faith. He has purchased you with his precious blood. He's even now preparing a place for you in heaven. And so to effectively run the race, we must know the prize that awaits us at the end of it. An Olympic runner doesn't spend his life preparing for that one race. He doesn't have a a strict diet. He doesn't continually exert himself without a knowledge of the prize he's going to get at the end of that. No, the prize is always before. It is always in his mind. He is constantly thinking of it. As we run the race of faith, we must know the prize of everlasting life. So be sure you know the sweetness of dwelling with Christ in perfection for eternity. Be sure you know the blessed comfort that the resurrection life is. Psalm 16 says, At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Know this and let it drive you to press on. Must press on. In Philippians 3, verse 12, Paul says, Not that I have already attained or am already perfect, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. This word, press on, has a connotation of pursuing after and chasing down. It is a pursuit with a, a relentless passion. And so it's often translated in the New Testament as persecute. It, 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 and so it has this, this intense zeal associated with it. And so we see that when, when Paul uses this word, press on, he's not just talking about casually walking after the Lord. He's not talking about casually like you're strolling through a woods. No, he's talking about this ardent zeal, passion, with a singular focus. Paul was running after God like a man on fire. It should be noted that Paul is not struggling with assurance of salvation here. When he says he presses on in order that he may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me, he's not talking about laying hold of assurance. 
Paul's not searching for assurance. It's, it's clear from the context that he does not have a doubt about his standing with God. He knows with certainty that he's going to be with Christ when he dies. Paul's inheritance, he knew his inheritance was secure in heaven. Paul had the first fruits of that inheritance. He knew that Christ had risen from the dead. And because of that, he knew that he would one day rise again from the dead. Ephesians 1 speaks beautifully about this. There Paul says that the inheritance we have obtained from Christ Well, he speaks of the inheritance we have gained from Christ and the guarantee of that inheritance being the fact that the Holy Spirit is now even dwelling in our own hearts. Paul knew that because the Holy Spirit had dwelled in him, that Christ was ascended in heaven and that Christ would one day raise his own body from from the grave. Paul's inheritance was secure but it was still a hope. He had the guarantee of that inheritance, but he didn't have the actual property yet. Thus Paul presses on, not in pursuit of assurance, but in pursuit of holiness. And to be abundantly clear, Paul is not speaking of justification here in, these, in this text either. Paul's not saying, I have to work at my justification. I need to contribute something to my legal standing with God and because Christ has, Christ's work has come up short. Paul is not saying that. Rather, Paul is speaking of his sanctification. That is, Paul is laboring to grow closer to Jesus Christ. He is striving to become conformed to the whole man after the image of God as he is pressing on. And this made Paul stand in radical contrast with the Judaizers, which we considered the last time I preached from Philippians. These Judaizers view themselves as having attained some sort of standing with God. They viewed their adherence to the Old Testament rites and rituals as contributing something to their legal standing with God. They were not wanting to find themselves in the righteousness which is from God by faith, but were wanting the righteousness which comes from their own observance of the law. So these Judaizers view themselves as being justified to some degree or another, but they also saw them as having arrived at a certain degree of sanctification, such that they were content. In a sense, they didn't need to, to press on with maybe the same zeal that they had done so before. Paul rebukes that type of contentedness by setting forth himself as an example of one who is ever striving to grow in holiness. Paul, with a profound humility, says he has not yet attained or been perfected. And so he presses on. He's not content. He ardently pursues Christ. As often the godliest saints are the ones who who have the greatest degree of humility. They are the ones who truly understand the depths of their sinfulness. As a saint grows in the Lord, as he grows in his knowledge of the word, as he grows in his understanding of God and in his understanding of himself, 
starts to realize more and more the seriousness of his sin and the sinfulness of himself. The older a saint is, the more they see their depravity and their need for Christ. The wiser a person is, the more they will trust in God. Trust in the Lord and recognize that all the wisdom that he has has been but a gift from the Lord. The godliest godliest saint will be one who, regardless of what he has done for Christ in the past, regardless of his knowledge, regardless of his own perceived holiness, he will continue to relentlessly press on. He will not be content, but he will pursue after the Lord. Yet sadly, there are many believers who just casually walk after Christ. Christianity is something that is only done on Sunday. Personal devotions are completely out of the picture. There is no communion with God on a day-to-day basis. And often for such people... They view Christianity as being something that only affects their eternal life. Christianity is not something that that deals with their life on a day-to-day basis. And so you'll knock on their door. You'll ask them if they have eternal life. They know that they have eternal life. And they'll say, yes, I know I'm going to go to heaven when I die. Then you ask them if they go to church and they say, they'll say, no, I, I accepted Jesus many years ago. I have no need for that. I'm, I'm secure. I'm fine. I don't need the church. I'm taken care of. I don't need anything else. They have a wrong understanding of Christianity. For them, Christianity is, is all about something far off in the future. It's not about the here and now. Paul blows those erroneous notions out of the water with these calls for us to press on. Yes, our hope is eternal life. But just because eternal life is off in the future, that does not mean that we we can neglect pursuing Christ now. Now we must press on. Now is the time to set to the work of the kingdom of God. And as you press on, you must also forget. Paul says in verse 13 of our text, Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. What are these things that Paul says he forgets? If you look at the context, Paul is very likely referring to his Jewish heritage, the privileges he had from being a descendant of Abraham. Remember, Paul just warned us of these Judaizers who in a very real sense believed that they had arrived. They had gotten to some degree of perfection. They believed they were the true Christians because they were circumcised. They believed they were they had standing with God because of their heritage, because of their ethnicity. Paul rebukes that type of thinking in the verses we considered. 
But he once again rebukes them with this erroneous notion by saying that forgetting those things which are behind. Paul has no interest in the fact that he was born Hebrew of the Hebrews, that he is of the tribe of Benjamin, because in the context of salvation, that is meaningless. It has no importance. It is not a gain to him one way or the other as he presses on in the pursuit of Christ. And one of the things that the Psalms encourage us to do repeatedly is to look at the past. In times of spiritual depression, when it seems like God has forgotten, when our circumstances would seem to tell us that God is no longer with us, we are to look at how God has been faithful time and time again in the past. We are to remember the continual commands in Scripture is to remember. And Psalm 77 is a great example of such a, such a psalm that encourages us to look to the past. Asaph finds comfort in the midst of spiritual despair by remember God leading his flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Similarly, the prophet Malachi, as Israel is uh, return from Babylon. Israel's struggling with, does God really love us? Our circumstances would seem to tell us God hasn't loved us. And, and how does Malachi address that? He addresses it by pointing Israel to the past. He points them to the promises God made to Jacob. Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Remembering our past, seeing how God has been faithful time and time again, can be a source of great encouragement. And this is why reading Christian biography can be so beneficial for us when we are in spiritual slumber. We need to be awoken by reading of the faith of others and how the Lord sustained others in trials and adversities. So, question that comes before us is Paul contradicting other parts of scripture when he tells us to forget those things which are behind I do not believe so and we can reconcile these two ideas by drawing in Hebrews 12 verses 1 through 2 into our consideration of this question Paul says in Hebrews 12 verses 1 through 2 let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. In Hebrews 12, Paul doesn't just say lay aside sins. No, Paul says lay aside every weight that hinders us in our walk, in our, in our running of the race. And when we apply that to our text in Philippians 3, we are to forget those things which are a hindrance to our running the race. We're not to forget all things, only those things which would slow us down and unduly hinder us in our pursuit of Christ. Running a race means that you cannot look behind you. It means you must forget what is behind you. It doesn't matter what you have already run. Matters what you are gonna, what's coming up on the trail. Matters what you are about to run. If you've just run down a hill, you can't be thinking, "Oh, it's so easy running down that hill." 
No, you have to set your mind as you run up a hill. You have to set your mind at the top of that hill and focus your eyes on the end of it. You must forget those things which are behind and reach forward to what is ahead. Similarly, similarly, if you are to run the race of faith with endurance, you can't get overly preoccupied with the past. For many of us, the past can be a discouraging place. We can see the sins of our youth. We see the mistakes we have all made. We can see the hurt and pain that others have caused us. We can let guilt and shame over past sins weigh us down because we do not take those sins to Christ. We can beat ourselves up over the mistakes of our past, even getting angry at God for for allowing us to make those mistakes. We can also get bitter and anger over the pain and hurt that others have caused us, rather than letting God be the avenger of the just. We can start to think that the past is fundamental in forming us and shaping us. This is the argument of secular psychology. My father was a drunk, so that means I can be a drunk. That means I can't be destined to anything other than being a drunk. I can't help it. I'm I'm a victim to my past. And so secular psychology says you are helpless to the past. Your present troubles are because of what somebody did to you. There's nothing you can really do about it. You are not responsible for how you act. You are not to blame or responsible for how you act now, but you can put all that blame on your past. But that denies the power of the gospel denies the responsibility that we have as moral creatures. Yes, our past does, to some degree or another, shape who we are, but we are not enslaved to that. Paul in Ephesians 2 says that we were once dead in trespasses and sins. In our past, we were dead But now we are alive because of the gospel. We can now put off sin. We can now grow. Yes, we must repent of our past. Yes, we must acknowledge our past. But that past does not determine our future. Sinful remembrances of the past destroy and hinder our growth and sanctification. It hinders our walk with the Lord. It does not help it. And this is what Paul is referring to when he speaks of forgetting the things which are behind. We must forget those things which slow us down. Whatever it might be, we must forget those things. We must reach forward to what is ahead. Seeking to grasp it. Seeking to take hold of it. If you are kayaking up a river, if you stop and look back, at where you've been, you'll be immediately brought back to where you were before. You will be slowed in your progress. And so it is 
with our spiritual life, when we sinfully look back at the past or allow the past to hinder us from pressing on, let us instead reach forward to those things which are ahead, knowing that glorious prize which awaits us. And so in conclusion, as Paul says in verse 15, let us, as many as are mature, have this in mind. Let us know that we have not been perfected. Let us know that we have not arrived. Let us know the prize that awaits us. Let us press on. Let's be diligent in persevering in our devotions and our communion with God. Let's be faithful in family worship. Let us forget our past and cling to what is ahead. Let us reach forward knowing there is an amazing prize that awaits us in heaven. Knowing that the loving kindness of the Lord is better than life. Let us press on. Let's pray. Lord, your loving kindness is better than life. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Lord, help us to press on with, with ardent zeal. Let us help us to pursue the Lord Jesus Christ. Keep us, Lord, from any hindrances which, which would slow us down in our pursuit of holiness. Help us to forget those things which are behind and reach forward to what is ahead. Lord, strengthen us. Renew our strength by your Spirit. That if we become feeble or even feeble now, that you would strengthen our feet, that we might press on with zeal. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's respond to the preaching of the word by turning in our psalm books to Psalm 86, the B selection. Notice in stanza six, uh, the psalmist says, Your way, teach me, Lord, I will walk in your truth. Unite my heart, your name to fear. That word unite really has the connotation of, of give me singleness of heart. Unite my heart. Give me, me singular focus. And that's really our desire as we press on that we would have that singular focus of laying hold of Christ Jesus. So let's stand and sing Psalm 86, the B selection.